Welcome to season three of the Fixing Healthcare podcast. I am one of your hosts, Jeremy Kaur. I am also the host of the popular New Books in Medicine podcast. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert was the CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He is currently a Forbes contributor, professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business, and author of the best-selling book, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong. Hello, everyone. And welcome to our monthly podcast aimed at addressing the failures of the American healthcare system and finding solutions to make it once again the best in the world. In this season, we've turned to politics and the role of government in healthcare. As always, we invite you, the listeners, to share your thoughts on this topic. Please take the new Fixing Healthcare Survey. Available on my website, robertperlmd.com, we'll be reading and discussing the best listener suggestions throughout this season. In this episode, we welcome James Carville, one of the most recognizable figures in American politics. Carville came to fame as the lead strategist on Bill Clinton's 1992 presidential campaign run, coining the now ubiquitous phrase, it's the economy, stupid. He has worked as a political commentator for both CNN and Fox News, and remains a powerful voice in politics today. Carville hosts now the 2020 Politics War Room podcast alongside political insider Al Hunt. He's here today to talk about the 2020 elections and the role that healthcare will play in determining the outcomes. James, you've been one of the nation's most acute observers of the political process for three decades. I can't wait to learn from your expertise. Let me begin by asking you, for the past four years, Healthcare has been ranked number one amongst voters. Why do you think that is? And second, what are the implications for current elected officials and those who will be running in November? All right, well, I'll start with just kind of being a college professor point here. There are two things that you talk about. What we generally talk about is how we pay for healthcare. Most of the time when people say healthcare is the biggest issue, we talk about paying for healthcare. You know, so the government is you know, into the healthcare business, really into paying for healthcare. You know, as a physician, a hospital or something like that, that's generally what the two issues are. And, you know, if anybody traditionally, politically, anybody that moves on this issue tends to lose. So we moved on it in 93, didn't get it through, we lost politically. Uh, President Obama moved on it in 2009 was able to get it through and suffered politically. So, you know, when you're dealing with this issue, you're dealing with something that people just don't hear about that they have actual experience with. And it's, you know, again, I I go back to my my thing is people talk about it. You got to be sure if you're talking about costs or you're talking about the actual product of healthcare. I know that related, but they are different. So let's dive in specifically to Congress. Uh, what are your thoughts on Congress's ability to rein in drug costs? Well, I'm just going to go politically on this. This is an enormous issue. I know so many people that still have friends in the business. A lot of them do focus groups, and we talk from time to time, although I'm not directly engaged in it than I used to be. And, and it, it just it, it continually comes up, 
and it's a real issue that really affects people's lives. My sister is a bar and a home health nurse. And of course, you know, so she deal with this all the time. People have high blood pressure, they have diabetes, they have multiple things. If they knock over their blood pressure medication, that's it. They're done for the month. It's not like you can just walk down to the drugstore and get a refill. And I think it, it's a terrible thing in a country of, of, of this enormous wealth where we have people out of like priced out of getting the kind of pharmaceutical help they need when they're facing these challenges. Now, I would defer to your policy people, but one of the things that the pharmaceuticals say, well, we, we need this because we need to do ongoing research. I think there's a compelling case to make, public case to make, is let the federal government fund the research. I mean, you apply for grants like you do for anything else, and you have a, a, a board of physicians that determine what's meritorious research or not. I mean, you, and then you say, okay, we'll pick up the research costs for you. If that's what's standing between people living and dying, the amount of money, like I said, let, let they can do the research, let the taxpayer fund it, and then I'll use that on the back end to excuse to overcharge people. So what do you think of the role of the media when it comes to affecting healthcare policy? I mean, you know, even though healthcare is probably one of the hottest topics, if not the hottest topic for voters, it doesn't have that same sensationalism as, say, talking about impeachment or what's going on with Iran right now. Do you think it's the media's responsibility at all to kind of come back and cover some of these issues that are very important to the American public but don't get covered as much? Well, I, you know, uh, first of all, the media, I don't quite know what it is, but, I, you know, it's, I guess, a conglomeration of people like that cover the election. Uh, maybe you guys in the media fall on that. You know, it's like anything else. Some of the reporting on health care has been I think good and admirable, and some of it is just you know, and and a lot of the horse race, you know, what I think you're referring to is the, the idea that you know these are what's driving, you know, the thing in Iran is an immediate issue. That's right, Dad. This is something new, it's fresh. We hadn't seen this before. The healthcare access, costs, quality debate has been with us forever. We have a healthcare debate 365 days a year, just 366 in this year. Impeachment is a much rarer thing. Now, I think there's real political value in a Joe Biden standing up and saying, look, we definitely have to focus on this, but we can't forget what our, you know, our primary Bob, and then you take them back to what the thing that they're really concerned about on an everyday basis, and that is healthcare. And you can't talk to anybody that doesn't do focus groups anywhere, urban, rural, race, ethnic, anything, that always comes up. And it does because it's horrendously expensive. And as you guys point out, it, it underperforms, costs more and delivers less than most anywhere, in, anywhere else. And people instinctively know that. So one of the responsibilities of Congress, from my viewpoint at least, is to prevent monopolistic consolidation and billing. They've passed legislation around that for almost a full century. And yet we see hospitals, just an article in the New England Journal of Medicine talked about how hospitals are consolidating for market control to raise prices. How can Congress or what should Congress do to reverse this process? You know, I, I, I know enough to know this is a huge thing. And I live in New Orleans and <clears throat> maybe there's something here that Ashna hadn't bought but it's kind of hard to find. And I, I just have to believe 
based on just everyday experience that the reason that they gobbling all people are, you know, they're, they're becoming consolidated is because they want some pricing power out there, which is, you know, what we're talking about today. But I, it seems to me being here and, and reading and looking around the world, there's consolidation going on everywhere. And and it's not that I'm, I didn't realize this, but you, you do that. They're buying up a lot of medical practices. They're everywhere. And they're not buying it because they, I mean, I, I, I get my, I, I, I know all the people in Austin, I think they're fine people, but, but they, they buy it because I think they think they're getting pricing power. Absolutely. That's, that's what's been going on. And this article in the New England Journal of Medicine talked about how quality has not gone up and service has gone down and prices have soared. So you're absolutely right in your conclusion. I think the real question is how does Congress break apart this monopoly if it was in almost any other industry? Right, they would because the, the industry, the answer is very unsatisfactory, but necessary. It is because as the industry has consolidated, it's also consolidated its political power and its fundraising powers. Do you know that that when Harry Reid, who, who I think is one of the great members of Congress of this century, was a Democratic leader, they were not allowed to even bring up drug pricing because the pharmaceuticals were so powerful in their, in their fundraising on. And as as you have consolidation, you, you have increased political might. So they're they're gonna be more formidable now than they were five years ago. That that's that's just a fact. We're the only country that I know of in the industrialized world where the government is prohibited from negotiating prices with drug companies. That's correct. Shouldn't surprise anyone that we pay two to three times more for drugs. The amount of power that they have is is staggering. And they're not going anywhere. There's no question about it. the legacy players, the insurance companies, the hospitals, the drug plans, and for that matter too, the physician specialties have massive influence and power in shaping legislation and preventing any real change from happening. Maybe we can take a step back though, because you, you, know, you spent so much of your career in the executive branch, obviously also in the uh, legislative branch. Where is the real change, if it comes through the government, likely to happen? Is it gonna come out of the executive office or out of the congressional area? The monopoly power that's being wielded by the healthcare providers uh, is so powerful that we need to have a Congress that's willing to stand up and stand up to this behemoth, uh, whatever, Leviathan, or whatever you want to call it. And what I would say to you and people that think like you is get the authority of an election behind you. Get the next president to say, if I win, and you're, this is what we're going to do. And I'm not going to be able to do it by myself. I'm not going to be able to do it by just conjoling members of Congress and profiting things. I'm only going to be able to do this if they know that the public supports it. And the way we're going to support it is we're going to win this election and we're going to go forward and try and do this. The only way you can do it. You're not going to do this without the authority of an election behind you. And what, without a clear statement from a candidate saying, if you elect me, this is the job that you sent me there to do and you have to help me when I get there, continue to do this job. 
I've written about the fact that I don't believe that Medicare for all, despite all the candidates who have proposed it, can possibly get through Congress. Do you agree or disagree? A hundred percent agree. And why would you want to try? I mean, what do you, I think it's like 140 million people. Look, if we were going to start from scratch, we'd do a lot of stuff different. Right? I wish I started from scratch. I'm 75. But this is all in there. It's embedded. I don't think there's any chance that, and, and uh, the other thing, they're going to face opposition everywhere, particularly from the unions. I mean, you're going to tell a, a Alameda County firefighter in California that you don't have your health insurance anymore, that you're in Medicare. I don't think that's going to work. One of the things I'm curious about is, based on your background, when you see politicians running on, on healthcare issues and they kind of promise things like Medicare for all that may not be able to realistically pass through Congress, kind of what are your thoughts on, on politicians kind of promising some of these pie in the sky type things? Or if they are pie in the sky? Well, everything started as a pie in the sky thing. At some level, I mean, the civil rights movement was a pie in the sky thing at one time. The, the, the women's rights movement was a pie in the sky thing at, at one time. Gay rights was a pie in the sky thing. And, you know, it was effectuated by people, you know, working hard and, and bringing about like social change. Before we had, you know, social security when it started, it was a pie in the sky thing. The problem with Medicare for all is you have to unring a bell. And I mean, you have to unring a bell in terms of people's lives. You have to unring a policy bell. You have to unring the entire way that something is paid for. I, I have no idea of what happens to the market cap of all these health insurance companies. But somebody has a lot of money in that. And probably a lot of pension fund. You know, for all I know, the, the little sisters of the poor have their pension fund tied up in this. I mean, who knows? But when you, you're not starting from scratch. You're starting from a point. And what Obamacare showed, and same thing that the chip showed in the 90s, and, and other, you, you can make real improvements within this system. Because you're probably not going to get to change it. It's, it, it's too inbred. So you want to affect it and move it to a better place. It's okay to dream, but your dreams have to be at least somewhat realistic. <laughs> so you're often credited with uh, President Clinton's notion that it's the economy stupid, and I'm sure you had a lot of input into that uh, phraseologies that happened. As you look to 2020, will healthcare be the economy issue that it was when you were uh, leading the Clinton campaign? Be more. Look at what a huge issue it was in 2018. I mean, it was probably the biggest issue in the 2018 off year election, which, by the way, generated the largest turnout we had since women had the right to vote. I don't have any doubt that this issue is going to be, unless between now and then everybody stops getting sick, which I don't think is very much of a chance either. I don't have any doubt. To that end, we still have 30 million uninsured in this country. Uh, what role do you see them playing in this upcoming election? Well, you know, there's a, probably a correlation between being uninsured and, and having a and voting. And the fact, people that have health insurance vote more often than people that don't have health insurance. But I think 
the probably more productive argument is focusing somewhat on the uninsured, but more, more how many people have insurance and insurance not any good? Or how many people want to expand it? How many people want to get things covered that's not covered on it? I mean, that's probably a fruitful area too. If you just focus on people that don't have insurance, then you sort of send the signal that you think everybody else is okay, which is not the case. It takes some political skill to navigate between the two. So you were directly involved with President Clinton and his efforts to pass health care reform. And I know you followed very closely President Obama's. Um, how do you see these, the, the two directions they were heading? Are they basically very similar? Or do you think they were no, they, they actually kind of, the, the idea again is health insurance. So the Clinton approach was most people get their health insurance from their employer. So we'll build on that. So therefore, we had all kind of subsidies and things for employers. To, 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 the employer was going to be the person who would pay for the extra people that were covered. President Obama took a different thing and he did more of the individual. And, and But both had the characteristic of basically keeping the same system in place but expanded one wanted to expand through employer-based coverage and the other actually did uh expanded by more individuals participating in the marketplace how are you or would you advise current presidential candidates to position themselves relative to addressing these shortcomings you know that I, I would say that the way what the country needs and what the country wants and the way that we're going to win is we're going to expand the reach of the Affordable Care Act. We're going to make it more available to people. We're going to get more things covered under it. And we're going to, yeah, it, because the Democratic voter thinks Medicare for all is a kind of a loser. They're worried about the politics of it. And that's something new where voters are into the political ramifications of a candidate's decision. But you can tell, like Senator Warren came out for it, now she doesn't talk about it because she sees that this is a political loser. For Bernie, look, he's got his X percent, and they're running off our dad. He's not going to be the nominee, but he's going to have a he, – he could potentially be the key once they get to, to Milwaukee. It could be a big issue. In the uh, material that I've written, I've spoken or written a lot about the fact that every payment system fails if the delivery system keeps driving up costs without equivalent quality or other improvements sitting in play. Do you see any role for the government, the president, elected officials, anywhere in changing the delivery system, not the finance system? So as an example, you could, uh, on legislative basis, say that hospitals with insufficient volume would have to either consolidate with others for higher performance, meaning not just consolidating to control the marketplace, or would have to send patients to centers of higher excellence the way we do right now in trauma care. You don't get taken to the nearest hospital, you get taken to the one that has the skill able to take care of you. You could pass uh, legislation that would actually change the delivery system. Medicare funds the number of residents 
we train more specialists and not enough primary care for what the nation needs, they could change the funding of that process. These are very fundamental pieces inside the delivery system, not at the insurance level. Well, I know that Obama, the Affordable Care Act had a, a bunch of things that to improve outcomes and metrics and things like that. I'm not familiar with all of them, but I know that, that there was some of that included. Um, I, I, I have no reason to think that your idea doesn't have a lot of merit. It, 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 but I know distance matters to people. I, I, I think a big crisis I hear is there's a real crisis in rural health care where you, these hospitals are basically being kept open by Medicaid expansion. A lot of places I know this is true in rural Louisiana. Um, you know, I, I don't think health care providers are strategically placed around the country. <laughs> I think it's in the cluster. That's a great example because, you know, with the military found, you may remember from the old days of the MASH hospitals, and they said, no, pay, uh, soldiers who were injured do better if we can stabilize them and transfer them to a hospital that has the right facilities. Possibly most of these hospitals in rural Louisiana would do better in terms of patient outcomes, not the local town economics, but patient outcomes by stabilizing basically a 24-hour ED and then transferring a very good transfer system, uh, transport system that was not overly expensive. That would have a tremendous political shortcomings. For the sake of argument, and I don't want the Washington Parish Medical Society to get on me, for the sake of argument, let's say that there's more specialist care and you can do a better job in your own. A lot of people just don't want to make that move. But the idea, you know, there's a huge story about how the number of murder deaths in New Orleans has dropped precipitously, like as low as it's been in 50 years. However, one of the reasons is, not total, but one of the reasons is we're just really good at trauma care. I mean, if if you got to get shot, get shot in a place where a lot of people have gotten shot before you. <laughs> I, that sounds cavalier, but you know exactly what I'm saying. I guess the question I'm really asking is the role of the government versus the role of the business. Because businesses could say, we insure all your, a lot of employees, you make a lot of money from us. And this, these are the changes we want the delivery system to make, similar to what's happening, as you know, with Haven, the Amazon, Berkshire Hathaway, JP Morgan Chase. And we do, we're gonna demand it of you. That's one way a change could happen to the delivery system. Will the government have the political will or willingness or courage to make these changes? And my answer is constant. It only will if they sense that this is something that the public is behind. And to the extent that you're an influencer, if you influence opinion, the politician will follow. Between now and election day, I think we should devote our energies toward getting people to be very clear what they want to do, how they want to affect us. And then when they stand up on election night, said, this is what the American people voted for. They voted for uh, a delivery system that incorporates X, Y, and Z. You have that, then you have political power. But you, you have to go, if you lose the election, it doesn't do you any good. If, if Mitch McConnell is the majority leader come January 2021, all of this is a, just an idea. If you have a Democratic president and a Democratic Congress, then some of these ideas are going to get implemented. But they have to be implemented 
with the imprimatur of the, not just the imprimatur of the public, but that where the politicians know the public supporting this, that this is what they were voting on. And I'd go to these town halls. You know, you be careful with this stuff, man. I hear this all the time. That's the way you affect political change. We, we want to affect political change by saying, well, from a policy standpoint, this is the right thing to do. Experience teaches us we should do that. That may all be true. But when you go against actors of this kind of power, you have to have political power for yourself. And that means that one thing, and that's strong public opinion. That's my view of it. So you're an expert, not just in politics, but also in economics. Today, healthcare consumes 18% of the GDP. It's the leading cause of bankruptcy. Out-of-pocket costs have risen twice the rate of overall healthcare inflation. Is there a breaking point that you can see? A time when we can say, no matter what, this will be the end. I'm going to keep coming back to the same answer. And that is, if all of this is going on, the public opinion on this has to be marshaled, it has to be galvanized, and it has to be articulated. We can, every, and I'm not an expert on economics, but I'm, I, I follow debates. We can, it's 18% of GDP, it affects this, it does that. It, it, when they start seeing it in town halls and they start feeling it and in letters and they start getting the sense, then they'll move. The thing that persuades them of votes, that's it. They rely on, on a lot of people for campaign donations. A lot, of, a lot of these boards are really powerful, are really all part of the community. These are powerful people. And the only way that you can really change it is you have to have the authority of an election, an election that was clearly delineated as to what you want. That's what it is. That, that's not like a satisfying thing that, that the chaplain's going to give a prayer and everybody in the Congress is going to say, you know what, we're just going to do the right thing by people. That's not going to happen without a very strong, clear intervention on behalf of by the public. That's what it is. That's what politics is, is building coalitions, is articulating a position and showing people that you can really make a difference in their lives and the lives of people around. So climate change is something you've been noted as being oh, extremely God. passionate about. Uh, when it comes to climate change and pollution and things like that, how do you think that should affect public health policy? Again, I'm not an expert, but boy, you, you could have any of these people own. I mean, the, the public health ramifications of climate change are beyond comprehension. And of course, the, the, as you would expect, as always the case, is disproportionately going to affect poor people. We have so much water that is coming our way in Louisiana. It's horrific, and I am very depressed and skeptical about the ability of the world to deal with this issue. What has struck me is, is I think that the climate issue is somewhat of an example of elite arrogance. Let me try to tell you how, why I come to this conclusion. I, I, I teach at LSU and I taught at Tulane and, and we're ground zero for all climate issues here in the United States because we're the southern terminus of the Mississippi River. So if you were going to give the lower 48 a physical, the first thing you would do is look at the lower Mississippi River because that's drains almost two thirds of the country. And 
I asked a friend of mine who's eminent historian, Sean Bolletz, he used to be chairman of the history department at Princeton. He's still very active. What's a time in history where people acted against their perceived self-interest, short-term self-interest, immediate term? And he said to check out the British anti-slave trade movement. And he was right. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's something of, there's a book called Buried Change by a Berkeley academic named Madden Hoshiel. It was just elegantly beautiful written book that tells you about this. And so after I studied it and thought about it, it really hit me like a boat. Do you know that climate is the only major political or social movement that I can think of that uses no art? You know, the British anti-slave trade movement had a decent song. It was called Amazing Grace. It's considered to be maybe the most moving song in the English language. They use art for nefarious reasons. People use art. They use symbols. I'm going to the LSU game. We got the alma mater. We got purple and gold. I've got, I've got shirts. We got logos. We got Mike the Tiger. Where? How is it that two people like us that know what's happening in climate, that know it has it, how can we communicate with each other in an artistic or emotional fashion? We can't. And I think this is a kind of an arrogance that we know what's best for you. And you should just read, if you just read the temperature charts and the title tables, you would know what's going on. You, you have to give people an emotional component. You have to give people a, a, a sense of camaraderie that they're coming together to do something. The reason that the politicians do, because they don't have a, we don't have a bumper sticker. We don't have a, a flag. You know, I was in the Marine Corps. You, everybody knows what the anchor and globe is. If I had drive a pickup truck with a Confederate flag sticking out the back, I'm, I'm communicating with you. You know exactly what I'm saying. There's no way that people who are mortified by this issue can communicate or do anything and, and be part of a larger community. And I think that's, that's a real drawback. Now, give me a song. You know, it said, give me a lever, I'll move the world. Give me a song, I'll move anything. I need a song. Do you think climate change should be, I mean, obviously, yes, but like, I mean, how do you think we could communicate that climate change is a public health crisis? I would, I would not, I wouldn't be the argument I'd make, although it is. And if you look at the scourge of what 2.3% degrees centigrade means it, it it it's beyond sickening it, it's catastrophic but you're not gonna you, you got to get people emotionally involved in the issue you got to bring them in but 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 you could you you could do you know mike bloomberg could run a hundred million dollars worth of spots saying that unattended will be responsible for 136 million deaths uh, it probably will be <laughs> or more I may be a, a good number to get out with. You, you got to give people a sense that there's something here that is bigger than themselves and they can join, be part of a movement. Then you can get some kind of action. We've got no action. We've got nothing. I mean, it's, it's horrible. I mean, look what's going on in Australia. If that doesn't convince you, and, it, and a, lot, a lot of people, it, it doesn't convince that it's real and it convinces some people it's real, but there's nothing you can do about it, then I don't know what else can I tell you. These people are like running into the Pacific Ocean. There's, there's not a, 
a magic solution to any of this other than education and moving people and trying different ways to convince people of that what they need to do other than telling them that they're stupid. I guess the final question I would have for you is I saw a quote from you from back in the 90s about how you felt um, the best way to get people off of welfare was to provide universal health care. Do you still feel that way? And, and kind of what are your thoughts around that? I, I think daycare is a really good thing. It uh, really affects women, obviously, disproportionately. is a really good way. I, and I, I believe, and I still do believe, that, that you know, the, the really good thing for people to be doing is to either have a job or be training for a job. And to the extent that we can... We encourage that and give people more opportunities to do it. I think that's a good thing. That's why I like the idea. I like Senator Warren's daycare plan. I, I like anything, you know, I, I like expanding health care for people, you know, that, that are working because it, it incentivizes them and, it, it, and it's good. We need more of that. that. That's a good thing about society and we're able to do some of these things. But that, that's just a, 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 a general kind of belief that, yeah, I, I, if we're going to expand anywhere in this country, an opportunity, I, I like to expand it to more lungs of to employ. Let me close by asking you, uh, let's assume that your, I'll call it your hope, uh, since I know a lot about your background, that the next Congress will be dominated by Democrats, the next president will be a Democrat, and it's four years from now. What do you think will be different about health care at that time? First of all, you, you you would have a real strengthening, deep strengthening of Obamacare. You'd have a pretty significant expansion of the number of people that actually had health insurance. Uh, I think that you'd have some of the improvements that you're talking about in terms of consolidation and expertise. I don't know if it'd be like to the extent that you would hope you'd want it to be, but I think you'd have some movement out. And I don't think there's any doubt they would have a hard time not dealing with the prescription drug issue. Because if they win, that's going to be a big thing that's easily going to propel them into. Now, once you get there, how, how different that your solutions are or, or something different, but they, they, would, they would almost certainly address this issue in some way. Well, thank you, James. It's really been fascinating to hear someone with your background, enthusiasm, and expertise. And uh, we appreciate you being on the show. And get me a song, by the way. I need a song. <laughs> <laughs> Probably Bruce Springsteen could write it for you. Why don't you just give him a call and ask him. Hey, Bruce. Uh, James, yeah. I need a song. <laughs> there you go. All right. Take care, guys. Thank you so much. You can't get any more of an insider's perspective than James Carville. As a physician, what are your take-home messages from his comments? James provided the reality of the political process. First, for candidates, health care is an area of both political opportunity and risk. Second, he pointed out the power of lobbyists is huge, but even more so is the potential for voters to sway legislators. As physicians, we often believe that facts, data, and information are effective in implementing change, whether relative to an individual's health or the health of the nation as a whole. He pointed out how emotion, along with images and songs, could produce vital and essential change. As doctors, we may not like his message, 
but we would be wise to learn from his experience. Jeremy, let's move to listener feedback from the current Fixing Healthcare survey. This season, we asked for listeners to answer this important question. How can the U.S. government best improve healthcare? I encourage anyone with additional innovative ideas to submit them on the website robertperlmd.com. We still have a couple of shows on this topic later this season. For this episode, we heard from listeners Stephen Maganga, Ryan T. Mackman, and Jennifer Sear, who all agree the U.S. government should do more to address social determinants of health. Robbie, for those who may not be familiar with this term, what are social determinants? The social determinants of health include demographic factors, like where we're born and raised, the zip code where we live, and the places where we work, play, and socialize. They also include economic factors and access to healthy foods. Together, they exert a tremendous influence over our life expectancy, as well as our mental and physical well-being. In fact, researchers estimate that social determinants of health are six times more likely to affect our risk of premature death than the medical care we receive. I'm eager to hear what our listeners had to say about this important topic. Stephen Maganga says, the government should focus on providing safe housing, reliable transportation, and better educational opportunities for low-income populations. Ryan T. Mackman points out that ride-sharing companies like Uber and Lyft have already started working with the Medicare Advantage to offer beneficiaries non-emergency medical transportation. He thinks the government can expand ride-sharing services in ways that benefit enrollees, such as delivering their prescription medications and transporting them to social events to combat the growing epidemic of loneliness. Finally, Jennifer Sears says the answers lie in preventative medicine and mental health reform, with an emphasis on addressing the social determinants of health. Robbie, you've written and talked extensively about social determinants in the past. What do you think about our listeners' suggestions? All too often, we fail to understand the impact of social determinants when we think about ways to improve health and increase life longevity. But the data is indisputable. You know, I can remember speaking at a national event in Washington, D.C. two years ago. I was there to talk about how we can improve care in underserved communities, particularly for patients with chronic disease. One of the other presenters reported the results of a survey she conducted among users of a free clinic in the community. When these patients were asked about their biggest health care issues, none of them mentioned medical problems. Instead, it was the lack of safe housing, heat, food, and reliable transportation. We will not be able to address the healthcare needs of our nation without a coalition of leaders from businesses, the government, social services, and traditional medicine. Once again, thanks to Stephen Maganga, Ryan T. Mackman, Jennifer Sear, and everyone who has participated in the new Fixing Healthcare survey so far on robertperlmd.com. Please subscribe to Fixing Healthcare on Apple Podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate our show and leave a review. Visit our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Fixing HC Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. I will tell your friends and colleagues about it. Together, we can make American healthcare once again the best in the world.
Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Have a great day.